This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, and welcome to Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe, the science and mystery that is the human body. I'm your host, structural integrator and author, David Lasondak. And before we get to our guest, I have a couple of announcements. So the first announcement is that on Saturday, February 25th, I will be conducting a workshop with my friend, Jamie DeMarco, who is both a physical therapist and a yoga teacher. It's a workshop called Fascia Function and Flow. So whether you're a yoga teacher or just a devotee or want to understand more about your own body, it's from 1.30 to 5.30 p.m. at Schoolhouse Yoga in the Strip District in Pittsburgh. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for those of you who are listening not in the continental United States, I've got a couple of appearances happening across the pond. One is in London on Tuesday, the 2nd of May, with my good friend Gary Carter. And uh, then again in Berlin on the 5th and 6th of May, we're going to be doing talks, presentations, and movement, and a guided tour at Body Worlds, including the Freya exhibit, which stands for Fascia Revealed educating integrated anatomy is an entire fascia wing of the permanent body worlds exhibit in berlin there'll be a link in the show notes that you can use so that we know that you're interested and as soon as we have all the details we'll send it out to you so again that's uh in london on the 2nd of may that's a tuesday and then in berlin on the 5th and 6th of may i really hope to see you there it's going to be a great time now let's get to the show so today's show is a little bit different. We're going to be looking at some bigger issues surrounding the STEM community, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And as a way of entering into this conversation with Professor Luana Maroja, I want to time travel. First stop, November 14th, 1982. It's a comic strip called Bloom County, which was like a cooler version of Doonesbury back in the day. It's by Berkey Brethid. There'll be a link to this particular cartoon in the show notes. And the most popular character in this strip was a penguin named Opus, who was the classic outsider who could observe and comment on the noble and the not-so-noble aspects of humanity. In this comic strip, he is walking up to a bus stop full of people to catch the bus. You know, you penguin types offend me. Hey, I'll tell you what offends me. Dirty words. That's what. Polish jokes offend me. Stereotypes offend me. TV sex offends me. Look, that sign is offensive. Hey, I made that sign and I'm offended. Frankly, sir, you offend me. Well, I'm offended at your offense. Those nudes offend my womanhood. Those gays offend my manhood. This comic offends my offensiveness. My, my gosh, my life is offensive. offensive. And they all run away, leaving Opus the Penguin to make a one-word conclusion. Often sensitivity. So now we're going to time travel to uh, a book called America, the book, which was written by John Stewart of The Daily Show. This came out in 2004. And in 2004, John wrote that 
the two-party system in America is governed by Republicans and Democrats. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that Republicans want to turn the clock back to a golden age in America that never really existed. And the Democrats want to make everything so fair that every day will become a long, painful apology. We're going to time travel now to our present. And just in the time that I had this conversation with Professor Moroja and put this podcast together, I found out something really interesting that USC, the University of Southern California School of Social Work, is going to stop using the term field in its curriculum because it's considered racist now. The exact quote is, uh, language can be powerful and phrases such as going into the field or field work can have connotations for descendants of slavery and immigrant workers that are not benign. So I guess my overarching question here is, where does this end? What is the end point that we get to in doing these things, enacting these policies? Slaves didn't just work in the field to get to this particular instance. You know, they also worked in the kitchen. So I guess we're going to need to change the word kitchen too. So as you see, my point, where does it end? When do we stop being offended and when do we start doing the hard work? I remember the equal rights movement in the 1970s, of which I was all for, but we kind of went from saying that men and women are equal to men and women aren't different. I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure science agrees with that. And what is of deep concern to me is how the diversity, equity, and inclusion is starting to affect the study of science, how science can be studied, and even the way professors are able to teach science. And that's all I'm going to say about the conversation you're going to hear next. I'm going to let Luana tell the story. So ladies and gentlemen, Professor Luana Moroja here on Body Talk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this installment of Body Talk. And I am thrilled today to have with me Professor Luana Maroja. She is a professor of biology and the chair of the Biochemistry and Molecular Biology Program at Williams University in Massachusetts. Luana, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's Williams College, not university. Oh, but. Williams College. Okay, it just says Williams on the on the website. Williams, so yeah, I know yeah, I appreciate yeah. that attention to detail. That's important. <laughs> so your area of expertise is uh, evolutionary genetics, uh, speciation, and uh, you have a passion mm -hmm. for academic freedom. And we're gonna we're gonna be talking, we're gonna be digging deep into that here. But before we get there, I'd like to know a little bit more about your background. You got your master's degree at the uh, Universidad at uh, Rio de Janeiro, but then you wound up coming to the United States. So what? there's a story there. What was that about? Yeah, I grew up in Brazil. I did my undergraduate and then a master's degree in Brazil, and I came to the U.S. for my PhD. There are many reasons why I came. Uh, the, the Brazil as a third world country has many uh, difficult things, especially corruption. Um, I grew up during dictatorship. Which dictatorship? Because there's been several. Uh, it started in the, in, the, in the 60s and it continued on. Okay, that uh, and, and I was there for the first election. Um, so it was in a way a hopeful time that we were coming out of that. But definitely growing up, the 
uh, censorship issues were 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 big. My family were always talking about that. My father my father had to burn books when the military took power. So um, your father was in the military. No, no, he was not. He oh, was, but he, uh, but he, so yeah, well, he had prohibited books from home. Oh, <laughs> so he came and had books taken off. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah what yeah. year? What year was that? Oh, I wouldn't know. Like it was the seventies, but yeah, oh, before okay. the seventies, like yeah, early seventies. Okay, so um, post World War II, still long enough yeah, that yeah, most yeah. of our listeners have a clue when that was. Wow. That's intense. Did, did, did yeah. he get thrown in jail, or they just burned his books? No, no, no. It just it wasn't. It wasn't that the government came and burned his books. Like the, his parents burned his books before anyone. Oh, okay, okay. It was like it. self-imposed. Right? Yes, it was. <laughs> it was. It was a prophylactic book. Writing. Yeah, it was prophylactic, <laughs> not to get in trouble, kind of thing. And, okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there were some cousins that escaped the country, uh, you know, so there was this ghost of uh, dictator, dictatorship when I was growing up, um, many musics, a lot of things underground, uh, you're not supposed to have groups on the streets and uh, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. Uh, but the reason I really came to the US that I really appreciated the science from the US, it was like, uh, I learned to read in English because of science and I was... Um, really interested in using the new tools of genetics that were coming up when I was in undergraduate, like uh, sequencing. Um, the, the human genome project. Genomic came later when I was already in the US, uh, okay. but to understand nature and to understand like natural populations uh, in nature, natural selection, what was acting uh, on individuals and the, the pressures that natural populations um, suffered. I, I, I did a lot of, uh, Field work in Brazil, I worked with mammals. Uh, I switched away from mammals because I got tired of uh, killing them and trapping them, too difficult. So I switched to insects, much easier um, coming to the US. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's sorry for killing a cricket, but when you have to kill a mammal, it's really sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a little too close to home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I came to Cornell uh, in 2001. Okay, um, that was a while ago. Okay. Yeah, it was a while ago. Um, and yeah, and then I've, I, I stayed, I did my postdoc at um, University of Cambridge in the UK, spent some time in Panama at the Smithsonian Institute. And then I came to uh, this position at uh, Williams College. And I've worked with uh, mammals, butterflies, crickets, even plants. So you've been here for a while. It was, I, I presume you felt that you had more freedom here in the US than you would have had in Brazil. That was part of the yeah, and, and much more opportunities right one thing that was really difficult in brazil is the amount of corruption was just unbelievable like everything you had to you know lie to someone or uh beg something you know and then the money would come at you know at the you would see the price of a computer for example eight hundred dollars Mm -hmm. And when we got the the bill for that was six thousand dollars. I mean, I'm giving a literal number for what happened back wow. then. Wow! Uh, and all these extra thousands went to someone's pocket, right? And that was sure incredibly common. You know, they talk about sexual harassment in in the U.S. Sexual harassment in Brazil was really really taxing. Like, oh, it was like. <laughs> Mm -hmm. nothing like here like, <laughs> <laughs> uh it was it was more commoditized you might say well you, you would say 
like, just to keep it to keep it you know yeah uh, yeah like that, that's a whole, yeah. wow i'm i'm, I'm just uh, thinking about things some of my colleagues have to procure like cadavers and in different different pieces of uh study equipment i can't even i don't even want to think about what that was like down in brazil because of the layers right. of layers of graft shall we say so you came here things were a lot smoother in that regard you could get the mm -hmm. things that you needed um but i guess uh, we're going to wade into these waters now where sometimes things that are very well-meaning can have a aspect to them that isn't so great when we look at them closely. What we're talking about here could be loosely described is the social justice movement, which has some really good ideas at its foundation, but there seems to be a kind of, at least from my perspective, I've been watching this situation. Uh, it started with the arts, with some literary uh, works and magazines in Canada in like the 2015s, 2016s. And I thought, well, I'm not too worried about the STEM areas. We've had a Department of Inclusion at the University of Pittsburgh for like since the 1990s. This was nothing new to us. So I didn't worry about it too much. And then I went to a medical conference and I started seeing all these things about decolonizing anatomy education. And I thought, well, okay, I can see maybe we should have some representations of Asian bodies and African-American bodies and what have you, as opposed to, oh, look, it's a white arm, it's a white leg, that's cool. Mm -hmm. But this, this went many, many, many shades deeper than that, including changing the taxonomy, which seemed really laborious and shouldn't we be spending our time on other things? So when I saw you at the Conference for Academic Freedom in Stanford, I thought, well, okay, here's somebody I can bring on board and, and uh, talk to you about this and, and my audience can hear about this. But in terms of you being a professor and being able to teach what you wanted to teach, and most importantly, speak freely. Now, free speech comes with a responsibility. You can't just you know, the classic example is yelling fire in a crowded movie theater. You have to take responsibility for what you say. And somebody in your position obviously does. But when did you first begin to go, ooh, something weird is going on? Personally, the, uh, the, uh, the first time that I felt that I was almost being intimidated in, in the classroom was, was the year that Donald Trump was elected. And uh, I had taught this course many, many times, and I would teach about heritability and a number uh, her, of- um, uh, her Inherited characteristics. Yeah, inherited okay. characteristics, how to calculate heritability, you know, that it's the variance in the population that is explained by genetic differences between individuals, that it can be measured by correlations between parent and offspring. And I would give a series of examples for people to understand- Like eye color, really like eye color. Mm -hmm. One of the examples was differences between populations, which I have used for many, many years, IQ differences between Brazil and the U.S. And Brazil okay. has an IQ of 84 or 85. So That's it's the average. Lower. Okay. The average is lower than the U.S. And I would give, I, I use clicker questions. I would get students to think with clicker questions about um, what is the causes of these differences? Okay, there are differences. What are the causes of these differences? It would talk a little bit. It was never a problem. Uh, you know, the, the main, the take home message is that we don't know. if yeah. all we have So, is so you're looking at maybe there's some epigenetic causes. Anything. I mean, it could be yeah. anything. Just because you see differences, the, the take home was with that data alone, mm -hmm. you, you can't conclude anything. You need much more. You need controlled studies. You need, you know, you need so much more to come to this conclusion. And 
And in that day, I had a student uh, stand up and say that it was impossible to measure this because IQ was inheritable and you couldn't even measure it. And then a number of st other students started standing up as well and, and saying something similar. Then I was teaching a course on evolution and I was teaching about king selection, which is the idea that um, individuals take care, let's say like are altruistic towards relatives mm -hmm. because relatives share genes with them and therefore they are protecting or help uh, increase their own fitness by protecting individuals that also carry the same genes. Right, so there's, a natural, there's a natural bias towards one. Yeah, like family. bees, right? And, and actually the example I was using was the ultra-altruism of bees and wasps, right? They oh, really? I don't, what, what's that? I don't know about that. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the, the bees and wasps are some of the most altruistics um, in the examples we have, right? They will give their lives for the colony, for the queen. Wow, uh, yeah, okay. And mm -hmm. the reason they do that is that, you know, the, they have a different uh, way of sex determination. So they have, uh, they, they are haplodiploids and they have more of their genes passed on through sisters than through own offspring. So they prefer to have sisters over own offspring. That's one of the, of the theories that explain that evolution. That's, We're talking about wow. that. Um, uh -huh. And uh, a student became really, really worried that I was actually... Uh, justifying Trump having higher debunka because I was basically justifying king selection. Yeah, that it's, uh, a, it's, a, it's a common occurrence. Yeah, it's a naturalistic fallacy just that? because it's natural. It doesn't mean it's good. Right, right. Now, now, did, did she confront you in class about that or how did that play out? No, it was, this was um, through a very long letter explaining to me how I was making this massive mistake of uh, basically justifying king selection and therefore Trump's action in my class. Which you never spoke about at all. No, of course Okay, not. yeah, of course not, because what does that have to do with bees? Uh, <laughs> or, or marsupials or whatever. Yeah. That, I think we call that a leap of logic. Right, right. It's naturalistic fallacy at, at its craziest, right? It's like, mm -hmm. so, so how did you resolve that situation with the student or did it resolve? Well, that that was relatively straightforward. I called her in and I explained that, you know, I explained that this was a naturalistic fallacy and the, the student accepted. But that was the first time that I had a direct, direct effect of this confusion, let's say, where, you yeah. know, like the same semester we started to see students in psychology refusing to use the term woman uh, and instead talking about people who have uteruses. Yeah, um, people with uteruses, so, right. Yeah. So, so do they call the do they call the male? Do they do they now call them people with penises? Because I've never heard anybody say that. <laughs> I never either. So, right. So like what's that, that about? A, that is a sexism, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's incredibly I sexist. I know. I know. They don't. They're not uh, consistent. And when they start, when they start redoing the lyrics of old soul songs, we I just don't even want to be around for that. I just don't even want to be around for that. But you know, it's funny. I I you remind me of something that happened to me. I was working on uh, editing uh, an academic textbook, and there was a particular chapter that never got finished in time for publication because I was having some some difficulty with authors. And that happens sometimes. It's not, I don't take that personally and I don't hold that against the author's deadlines. There's all kinds of, you know, you know how that is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, but, but anyway, um, 
the sticking point in this one thing was that we were looking for a handy way because yoga is very popular right now. And I often refer patients to specific yoga classes or teachers that I know because they, oh, they could really use this. And this would probably be a good fit for them in this class. Mm -hmm. But I was informed by one of the potential authors that if I was referring patients to a yoga class, I needed to talk to them about the history of cultural appropriation and sexual abuse in the yoga community. And if I didn't do that, I was vile. I was a violator of human rights. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and I was like, what? That that's, that's wow. a little, yeah. That's like, that's really intense, man. I, I, you know, okay. I think if I do that, I've just, you know, I I'm sending these people to people that I know and trusted and known for years. And if I do that, I'm going to scare them away from it. How yeah. is that helpful? <laughs> you know? So that's, that's the part that really made, you know, my hair, stand on in. Um, so, so those were a few ripples in the pond, but when did it start getting worse? When did you start seeing it becoming not just a few people, but, but in large, uh, it's interesting, right? Because in some ways it was gradual, right? You know, the college started, for example, requiring that we took, uh, basically a diversity course prior to every hiring, um, our hires started to uh, have to be accepted by the DEI office prior to, not the dean anymore, but now the DEI office. This was all incremental, you know, and uh, I sat in many of these. Uh, Is this like the, 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 do you gradually rise the temperature? Yeah, of the water the frog yeah or rise how many meetings, uh, how often, who needs to sit in these trainings, you know, mm-hmm. Um now, initially, what, what did you see as the benefits of these measures? So I, I think that the the idea that, you know, that uh, I, when I arrived to the U.S., that's the first time I heard that, and I, I thought this was fine, it was a good step forward. Uh, the the idea, for example, that males interrupt too often and females are sometimes no, we don't. cut off. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, this, this is fine, right? You know, it yeah. raises awareness without mm-hmm. necessarily... Uh, pointing to anyone in particular or, or trying to reverse the thing and say now males can't speak at all or you know this was all very reasonable yeah some self-awareness self-awareness yeah. and when i got to cornell i didn't feel like i was there because i was latina mm-hmm. um they had a course a cultural integration course for foreigners that i had to sit and it was optional but i i chose to to sit there, they actually paid me to sit through this course. And it was not about like uh, every aspect of my culture had to be accepted. It was much the opposite. It was introducing American culture to foreigners that may not understand. It was very much geared towards Asian, so Asian students. So it would, for example, uh, tell people that, you know, oh, a professor does not have to come in a tie and, uh, you know, they, right. they might or, be Or you, if you go to a funeral, fashion. you're you're expected to wear black, not white. I mean, just simple, <laughs> basic cultural differences. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't love the course, but I thought there wasn't anything like offensive. Yeah. Right. It was yeah. fine. I mean, there was I some value. There was some value. To, to have people be successful in their new culture, not be, you know, not be as foreign to to the, mm-hmm. the new environment so that was good um it was when they started to like reverse things and try to lower bars completely and i i, I remember vividly that i was sitting through a diversity uh 
course for new hires. And I was told in this course that when you evaluate Latina candidates, mm-hmm. and I don't think they use Latin X, I think they use Latina, okay. <laughs> Latina candidates, you cannot expect the same kind of productivity from these applicants as you do from others because they have more obligations towards family. Now that I find outrageous. How what? do you expect less from me because I did the personal decision of having more obligations towards my family? Do I do all Latinos? Is that a, a thing? You know, is that <laughs> what you expect from, from from Latinos? I think that's kind of a human thing. I mean, kin selection is one of your specialties. You would know about that. Well, you may have. It is true that in South America, the males males typically do not do anything at all. They just sit down, drink beer, and they never help with anything at all. That's not true in the U.S. In the U.S., <laughs> males are expected to do a little more, wash the dishes, do a few things. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, as a Latino in the U.S., wants to let your husband sit down and drink beer, then that's your problem. <laughs> you <know? laughs> that's not something that we have to take into account for you to be hired. Right. I mean, that's yeah, bad yeah. decision. Don't do that. that. That's actually that's actually on the job application. Are you married? Yes. Does your husband drink beer? Yes. <laughs> So, you know, it's like, it's mm-hmm. taking some detrimental cultural aspects, frankly, that even people in Brazil are trying to break free from that uh, and elevating them to like, that's the way it is. And uh, we don't expect as much. You still have to hire them, but just you can't expect as much. You can't expect, so so you need to hire one and a half people then yeah. because they're not going to do what's expected. You know, I, I'm waiting to see like, well, People from South America are a little more dishonest, so don't expect honesty. You know, <laughs> how does it, how does it end, right? <laughs> you know, we have George Santos now, right? The, yeah. The oh Mexican my God, guy. George it's Santos. Brazilian, right? Yes. Like, yes. Classic. Yeah. Yep. Like, classic. I'm not grifter. saying, hey, classic he's That's the way. <laughs> it is these 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 very detrimental, lowering the bar, right? You see discrepancies. Uh, and instead of trying to erase the discrepancies by uh, teaching more, have extra opportunities, or uh, changing the culture so mm-hmm. that you, you show the importance of learning mathematics, for example, they do the opposite. They say, well, let's cancel mathematics. Let's, uh, it's too patriarchal. Since that, it was just in a in a conference, like in the mathematical, one of the mathematical conference had a talk, a, a key talk, an opening talk, saying mathemat- mathematics is too cis heteropatriarchal, and, and therefore, therefore what? Now we, okay, all right, okay. Um, at least they didn't say math was white supremacist, did they? No, it was very close. <laughs> well, okay, because let's, come on, come on, come on. The, mid, um, the, the Arabs invented algebra, all right? Yeah, Can we get a little real here? I mean... You know, <laughs> it, do these people not know the own history of of their science and technology? Well, some people may see Arabic as white adjacent. <laughs> uh, I just saw something. I think it was in the L.A. Times that any any person of any race, which of course race is a social construct, um, any person of any race can be a white supremacist. You don't have to be white to be a white supremacist. Uh, yeah, I saw that. I, I guess the, the Arabs who created algebra were white supremacists. We just didn't know it at the time. So, and this is this is a level where it begins to get absurd. But then you see, and I, I'm, I want to be clear here. I, I don't think anybody should be discriminated against for who they basically are. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and that people need to have access 
equally to opportunities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, but when you see this kind of institutionalized mandates to, like you said, lower the bar or give people a pass, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, as I say, oh yeah, she didn't do her job, but but she's Latina. She we yeah we just we just we don't care because she we, <laughs> we didn't expect her to do a good job anyway. I mean, that's kind of racist too, isn't it? It's incredibly racist. It's unbelievable. If we get off the personnel issue, I understand this is now beginning to affect what can and cannot be spoken about or cannot can and cannot be studied from a scientific perspective. Could we unpack that a little bit? Sure. So that there are obviously certain areas that in, in research, and especially in genetics research, genomics research nowadays that are taboos evermore. Anything that touches on intelligence, even if it's intelligence between individuals, is mm -hmm. taboo. Or, or the other is uh, the other area, which is real taboo, is uh, studies of uh, crime propensity, violence propensity. So there has been studies that mapped, for example, calculated the locations, like GYZ studies that try to map the locations of uh, genes that might increase uh, the probability of violence, of someone becoming violent. So Whoa. You know, these kinds of studies can be uh -huh. real taboos, right? Sure. <clears throat> was, was that controversial before or just lately? It has been controversial for a while, but the yeah. capacity, the scientific capacity is becoming better and better, right? So as we have data sets that now include basically whole genome for millions and millions of individuals, we are better and better able of mapping things. So you, you probably saw the, uh, the the mapping of intelligent genes, right? Or education attainment, which yes. was the real measure. So you get groups of individuals that had many, many years of education, groups that had very few years of education. You can compare these groups and find genetic differences between mm -hmm. large groups. And this is entirely done in whites. It has never been done in any other race. And uh, the fear is that if you start doing this for many races, you may find the differences between races. And of course, this is taboo and the studies are highly criticized and mm -hmm. oftentimes uh, people involved in these studies are. But, but, but okay, let's, let, let's, let's take it down. Let, let, let's take it away from the intelligence thing. And of course, I'm sure you remember about the bell curve and all that controversy mm -hmm. from decades mm -hmm. ago. If we look at something simple of course, there are going to be differences. Let's look at something like sickle cell anemia. That's right. something that predominantly affects Black and African populations, not white or Asian populations. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's a value to being able to study these specific subsets of humanity, yes? Sure. And, and in fact, when the subsets of humanity are not studied, it's a huge problem. And it's also considered racist if you don't study <laughs> um, particular subsets. Yeah. Uh, so, so obviously we need to study all subsets because different, you know, ultimately the reality is that there are differences between populations. Between mm -hmm. human populations, there are differences. These differences may not be observable if you look at just a small fraction of the genome. So if you're looking at one, two genes, you're probably going to find, let's say, blood types, right? You find the same blood types all over the world, however, in different frequencies. So Asians, I believe, have more O blood type or A blood types in Europe and so on, but they're found all over the world. So just looking at someone's blood type, you cannot tell 
what their ancestry is and this division of white asian black and uh, indigenous is is a very simplified in reality there is a whole gradation and there are these very distinct categories um however there are differences and the more you look the more the more the more data you look in the genome the easier it is to see these differences and it's to the point that if you are looking at a very large fraction in the genome you can tell with so much accuracy that you are able to place the ancestor of a person for example an european person within 500 kilometers from where they truly were so very relatively small region compared mm -hmm. to the whole world in the whole 23 if you ever did 23 me or yeah. these ancestry sites they can color your chromosomes based on where in the world they came from right it's like with quite good accuracy and and the reason for that is that there are good differences between populations so of course we expect that there will be a different set of uh, of of uh, genes alleles that play a role in one phenotype in one part of the world not the other part of the world uh, and we are already finding these things for for disease i think it was just last week or the week before, might be a couple weeks ago now end of december uh they published a paper uh comparing the makeup of uh dementia genetics in mm -hmm. whites and in blacks and they found that there are different genes involved in one population but not the other with um, the genes for dementia yeah oh wow yeah. So, you know, and this is because there are different genetic makeups between populations, but even saying that is taboo because they insist that races are a social construct. I have a hard time with that one. Uh, myself, Especially and... when it comes to medicine, because if yes. you don't know that and you, you can't know because it's taboo to know and you can't study and many, many medical schools are even going away from teaching things like that, then how are you gonna take care of your patients? Here's another practical example, more from the medicine standpoint, symptoms of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. If if we don't start putting sex, which is different than gender, uh, mm -hmm. if we don't start making those certain qualifications, persons with uteruses have different symptoms when they have a heart attack than persons with penises. So <laughs> if we don't know fundamentally how you started uh, in this world, and there is an outlier. I mean, there is like a, what, a point, 5% of the population that is truly intersex, like maybe 10 million people out of 8 billion that have some mixture of both gametes and, and such. Although in terms of gametes, is way fewer than that. The intersex people is usually in terms of uh, phenotype, but in terms of gametes. Oh, okay. Okay. My, my, my misunderstanding. No, the, <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. That's, I, I, I kind of went up several scales from micro to macro there. Uh, so thank you for reining me in. But I guess my point is, is that women, whatever we call them these days, their, their symptoms of heart attack often involve a lot of stomach pain and what feels huh. like nausea, not the traditional chest clampy down the arm on the left side that affects the male of the species. And if I don't know that going in as an ER doctor, I might make a different diagnosis and actually accidentally kill somebody because I didn't realize that maybe they were originally biologically a female. I'm left with two questions here uh, in the bigger, bigger picture of things. First of all, what I'm hearing is that characteristics, what your characteristics are, have nothing to do with your value or worth as a person. But it almost feels like they're trying to make everything mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so 
so equitable that every day is a long, painful apology, and that somehow by making everything so completely equitable, then everybody, your differences that make you interesting mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. me, because it's like, wow, who is Luana about? She has this whole life experience I don't know anything about that really shaped you and your culture. Mm -hmm. So how do you... I'm thinking back to a, a classic science fiction book by, um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this, Luana, so just like, reel me in. I'm thinking about this classic science fiction book by Ursula K. Le Guin. And uh, in this book called The Lathe of Heaven, um, this psychologist was working with a patient who had this ability to have dreams that affected reality. And once he realized this was not a psychosis, but a thing he could actually do, uh, the psychologist began to work with the patient under hypnosis and begin to make bigger and bigger changes. You know, <laughs> you know that kind of thing. He he told the patient to have an effective dream that eliminated racism. And when the dream was over, everything was gray. <laughs> Every in, a, in that that has stuck with me since I was fourteen years old. It was, <laughs> and I feel like are we just trying to make everything gray? Do you think that's what's going on? It's really sad because, as you said, you know, instead of uh, of setting the bar that every human is valuable, it doesn't matter the color, the height, the intelligence, nothing of this, every human is valuable. They basically say it's not, right? So if you don't have a higher education, then there is some problem that we have to fix because everybody has to have a higher education or at least groups have to have a higher education in the exact same percentages um and basically they reduce individuals into their groups and i don't see how that can work <laughs> you know yeah. like there are massive cultural differences so so you know when I, I i actually always wanted to work as uh as a biologist i did not want to be a medical doctor my father and, and he died before i went to to college uh when i was a teenager uh, was horrified by that. He thought that was a massive waste of time to want to be a biologist, to take care of animals and plants, and that if I had any inclination to science, I had to be a medical doctor. I could not be anything else other than a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. And this is very common in, in, uh, in Latino culture and uh, immigrants in, in, in general that you know, they want, the parents want you to make money. They don't see biology. It's the status. It's the status. Yeah, it's the my status. My daughter, the it's doctor. Like, so, yeah, you know, I remember my father sent me to my room. I was crying because mm. he said this was a useless uh, profession. I could never do that. I had a student uh, here at Williams that was the same thing. She wanted to be an ecologist and wanted to go to grad school. She was almost about, she was about to, to finish uh, undergraduate and her parents were, not cool with that they were screaming at her saying that she could not do that she had to go to medical school and she came talk to me about this and how they, you know so there is big cultural differences that also dictate where people go to whether they go to medical field post postgraduate work even to college right you know there's big cultural differences that also um, have differences between groups and that will ultimately affect the lives of individuals within those groups. But are those differences like necessarily something that we have to crush and change to conform to, I don't know, the colonizer expectation, right? <laughs> that, you know, I, you know, it's, yep, yep, it's okay. You, know, you, you can say the C word. 
what what do you think the fear is that's underneath all this? Like what? Because that's what I keep coming back to is why are you so afraid of this difference? Or why are you so afraid that this difference might make a difference? Because what, what's driving all this underneath it? That's what I'm trying to understand. The thing is that it's so many things, right? Because it's a, you know, like, like, uh, like, like if we go back to the language, the purity of language, like the, the Stanford list of prohibited words, or or the decolonization of body part. And, and this this list of words for the listeners who aren't familiar with it came out from Stanford University. It's part of their thing to it's the elimination of harmful language initiative. You can't say OCD. You have to say detail oriented. You can't say paraplegic. You have to call them a person with a spinal cord injury. Um, you can't use the word tone deaf. You have to say unenlightened which I would say is uh, spiritually damaging to a lot of people. <laughs> if you call them unenlightened rather than toned up. I mean, it's just, it, there's so many layers of gradation. So I'm sorry I interrupted you. But, you know, they had the, the similar initiatives for taxonomy of bird bird names. Like what? Bird names are, are not okay because some bird names are colonialists and, uh, and they want to decolonialize bird names. Like, what's the point of that? <laughs> you hate all this. It's like, it's, it's a complete wasteful time and effort. Why not, you know, describe new bird species or study their populations rather than trying to rename every single thing to not have some colonialist name? Why? I, um, I think if, if we're going to do that, we should hire the people who come up with the names of paint colors because they're really good <laughs> at that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's like saying, why do you want to waste your time renaming everything? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but then we have to go back and then we have to re-educate everybody into what the new names are. And in this case, it's virtual signaling, right? It's like it's some research saying, like, look how noble I am. I found this this problematic bird name. And I'm mm -hmm. it's just virtual signal. And you know, my I go to the same conference every year, which is the evolution conference. And there were so many talks this year that had to do with like some colonialist. You know, everybody that was doing work in the tropics had a little thing about decolonializing research and how they acknowledge their field guides. And, you know, it's like, okay, but, you know, pay them better if that <laughs> one. They're not going to care that you put their names in the, in the talk thing. I mean, most of these field guides are mainly illiterate people that we hire as we're going in the field, right? At least that was mm -hmm. the case when I was doing my work there. You know, there is a lot of that. And then there is these additional fears, which I think are, are driven by the naturalistic fallacy, the inability of uh, understanding that it, it doesn't matter. Differences don't matter. Humans are humans. And I don't know, like anybody that has more than two kids should know that it doesn't matter. Like you always have one kid that is smarter than the other. It's not that that kid is more valuable. It's, you know, it's it's like... It's life, you know, you touched on something there that I, I'd like our leaders to understand our readers. Um, I said leaders because I was thinking listeners and readers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the naturalistic fallacy. Could you explain that in a little more detail? Uh, sure. So that is the view that what happens in nature is good. For example, when, 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 uh, People first started map sexual orientation and demonstrated that uh, there is a genetic component to sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. I think this was well received 
And especially when they start demonstrating that uh, there are many animals which have same sex sexual orientation. Yes, and that was a big that thing was, that I, I don't choose to be gay. I am gay. I never, yes, yeah, it's exactly. just who I am. So yeah. this was very well received. And, and the fact that it also exists in nature was very well received because this is seen as something good. But of course, nature is full of good things and very bad things. There's also infanticide. You know, yeah. are we going to say that infanticide is good just because it happens in nature? Uh, so, so I, I have things. fish. I have fish outside. I have koi. And part of the way, first of all, they don't grow larger than the environment you put them in. That you want to talk about, but that, how does yeah. that work, Luana? I want to know I, how that works. I know. <laughs> um, but they will, um, if they lay eggs, I may never know about it because they may eat them. Yeah. Because that's what they do. Yeah. You right. know, I don't know if that's right. some, you know, for whatever reason, but that I guess that's kind of not so cool. Yeah. So we pick and choose, right? Ultimately, it's kind of like getting picking up uh, biblical passages, right? Oh, yeah. You choose the ones that, you know, that are okay nowadays, and you reject the ones that are not okay. Uh, pick, picking and choosing which citations we use in a paper. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's natural selection, baby. But, you know, it also makes me think about, and this is um, from uh, somebody I, I had treated over the years, they were made to feel bad about the fact that they had a cesarean section, not natural birth. Mm -hmm. the, the circumference of their child's head was in the 99 percentile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If that person had been given birth a hundred years ago, they would be dead now. Yes. So yeah, natural is not always better. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So Luana, this has been fantastic. I, I just, it's really been nice to have a adult conversation about these kinds of things. And a I think a respectful conversation uh, about these kinds of things. I'm, I'm also looking at here. I was going to call you the one of the gurus out there on this academic freedom idea, but I see here that we're not allowed to use the word guru anymore because <laughs> it could be, I'm not making this up. Uh, it is a sign. Uh, it could be demeaning to Buddhists and uh, Hindus who look at that as a sign of respect. So I should call you a subject matter expert, leader, teacher, or guide. So I want to thank you for being a leader, teacher, and guide into this space. Uh, is there is there more that you, like, where, where do we go from here? How do you, where do you see this ending up 10 years from now? I, I, I frankly think that a lot of people are picking like they are coming to their <laughs> coming to realize that this is going too far. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping that there will be more people speaking out and starting to, you know, push back against this. But of course, the difficulty is that the, the universities are becoming ever more ingrained with these DEI bureaucracy and uh, people that have uh, uh, an interest in keeping the system as is because it gives jobs. You know, more and more jobs nowadays you have to 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 write, which I see it as uh, political litmus tests, like the DEI statements, right? For every academic, it's job. on every homepage. It's on every homepage. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 I don't know. Uh, I, I one I don't understand how valuable that is because people know exactly what to write. You can go on the web. You can. You can go to Chat GPT and ask them to write, <laughs> to write one for you. You would probably write a very good one. You would probably write a very exactly, good one. Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, and, and these approaches that a lot of teachers are taking, right? Like, so a lot of professors are taking approaches now that they don't penalize for uh, homework not turned in. They have like contract grading now that uh, students have a guaranteed grade just, just for showing up. 
and, and sometimes this grade is set at very high levels. Um, I have like at least one colleague in my college that does ungrading, which means like the students decide their own grades mm -hmm. uh, and everybody gives themselves A's. Uh, and of course, these people are very naive. They, they don't understand human nature. Like when you yeah. take away the incentives to study, people don't study. The majority don't study. And that increases inequalities even more because there will be fully, pa truly passionate students that will continue to study and a lot of others that will not. So in terms of learning, that is generating massive inequities. Well, well, that can I say, can I say if we're going to go in the, the naturalistic uh, perspective here, adversity is a natural condition of the world. Mm -hmm. And if you never have adversity, you don't really, yes. you, you don't own anything in your character. You know, right. I mean, when, right. somebody when somebody tells me no, it makes me want to work harder. I might get upset. I mean, nobody <laughs> likes being told no if it's something that they really want, need, or think they need to do. But then it, it gives you the opportunity to dig in and say, "Well, I'm going to find a way to do this thing, or I'm going to find another angle to do this thing. I'm going to, I'm going to think it through more." Mm -hmm. Whoever thought we'd be living in a time like this? Yeah, but I'm, I'm hoping that mm -hmm. parents, students will start to realize that this is not a game. You know, that taking courses, for example, that don't grade you are, are only setting you back. They're not, it's not what you're paying for. That I, these these things will become so, you know, obvious for what they they are, like political litmus tests or DEI statements, that mm -hmm. people will eventually stop paying attention at these things. Yeah, um, they're, they're going to realize it's performative and it has no... Yeah, it's entirely performative. You know, I had a teacher uh, once who worked really hard never to fail anybody because she thought even even if you had difficulty with the subject uh, but you showed up you tried you did the tests that you should at least get a c or a c minus and she was really if you got an f you you worked for that f i mean you really <laughs> tried to get an f and i thought that in terms of equity that was that was pretty okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You know, there's and some, i there's think some... that is already true i mean first of all there has been so much great inflation that you can't I have never had a student that got a D or an F mm -hmm. uh, without really, really trying to get a T or an F, like not <laughs> showing up for anything, not turning in things, because, right. yeah. you know, because otherwise I think we are already at a, at a point that if you do the work, you are guaranteed basically a C. Yeah. Something. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Right. You know. So, which is fine. But A's to everybody, it takes the purpose away and nobody learns anything. You know, it's just, it's nice. If you remove the bar altogether, then people are not even going to try it. They're just going to walk through it. So as, as I mentioned earlier, um, I, you came on my radar at the Conference for Academic Freedom, interestingly enough, at Stanford, who released this list of problematic language. How did you pop on their radar and, and how did you get invited to that? Um, I think that I published a piece in the Atlantic in 2019. Okay, yeah, and, I read that. Uh, yeah, and, and I think I I also described uh, some events about free speech or the lack of free speech at my uh, at my own college around that time. So that's mm -hmm. how I, I, I got in the radar. Uh, uh -huh. So did you yeah. feel, did you feel better after the conference? Did you feel like, okay, maybe it isn't hopeless? 
Yeah, I, I, I did because yeah, I think a lot of people are starting to to see that, pay attention. I definitely had a lot of biologists contacting me with more stories from their own departments and their own things that they are they are dealing with, very similar things. Um so if someone yeah. out there is listening now, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to the conference because the, the videos of the entire proceedings are available on YouTube. So mm-hmm. there'll be a link there into the show notes. But is, is there any other sources or, or recommendations you might give to somebody listening now who is looking for um, an outlet or something they can do or someone they can talk to about this and feel like they can express what they feel without fear of reprisal? Uh-huh, uh-huh. We used to call them friends. so uh for people who are in uh if you are in stem fields we have the heterodox academy the stem yes i'm fascinated by the heterodox academy yeah so they have like a a number of groups not just for science but for arts for a number of uh of groups and they they have these uh basically websites that is email based and if you subscribe then you get emails from people you can respond uh and it can become an interactive list where you can post comments warn each other about upcoming things or concerns ask for questions it used to be entirely email which i actually thought it was better now it's a portal so you have to go to the portal to respond which adds a step and therefore decreases the number of people who are actually responding so we're trying to reverse back to an email system which was better but that's one way i mean the group is very 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 nice and and you know welcoming and and will help people with problems uh we even have a a a substack publication associated with the heterodox which will accept anonymous things so if people want to publish something, some story, even under anonymous, completely anonymous, uh, that that's possible. Uh, so the the heterodox group is a is a great start, uh, and it's divided. As I said, there's divisions like by discipline. Uh, so you can be like the STEM group is the one that captures all all sciences, and then there's a lot of people writing about it, right? Like there's a Barry Ways has been writing about that's, it. Uh... Big, yeah. she's, she's a hometown gal. She's from Pittsburgh. I'm in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I've been a fan of hers for years. So yeah, yeah. Jerry Coyne has a blog that is very good, um, focuses more on biology and ideology into sciences that is excellent. It's called Why Evolution is True. Um, and it's a web page. Okay. And he posts new things every day. So if you just want to stay, stay updated, you can look at his blog. Okay. And uh, learn a few things, um, but yeah, I mean, sites are increasing every more. There's a lot more substack now from people like writing uh, against, concerned about this uh, ideological capture of sciences and everything else. <laughs> but yeah. as you said, the sciences have been one of the the, the last ones, right? Well, yeah, you yeah. know, it's it's that old thing. Well, I didn't think they were going to come for me. Oh God, they did. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, Luana, it has been. This has been delightful, better than I I ever thought it would be. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Again, we're going to time travel. First, we're going to go way into the future. And it's some words spoken by one Captain Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek The Next Generation, the episode The Drumhead. We think we've come so far. Torture of heretics, burning of witches, it's all ancient history. And then, before you can blink an eye, suddenly, 
it threatens to start all over again. You know, there are some words I've known since I was a schoolboy. With the first link, the chain is forged. The first speech censured, the first thought forbidden, the first freedom denied chains us all irrevocably. And then let's go into the past and Thomas Aquinas, who said, we must love them both, those whose opinions we share and those whose opinions we reject, for both have labored in the search for truth and both have helped us in finding it. I don't think you can judge a person by one opinion that you don't agree with. I don't think that just because of that opinion, or maybe several, or how they voted, you can judge their entire character. Nor do I think that not talking to people that we don't agree with is a healthy way for society to move forward. We must learn how to talk to people that we don't agree with, and we must learn to listen to people we don't agree with and forge a deeper understanding. That's the way forward. This is David Lasondak. Thank you for listening to this installment of Body Talk. In this economy of attention that we live in, if you give me your attention, I'll make sure it's worth your time. See you next time here on Body Talk.